It's good to be back with y'all again and to bring us again to God's Word. We're going to continue to be looking at Psalm 139. There's four stanzas, and we're taking each stanza a week that I'm here. And so we're going to be looking at stanza number two, but I think it's always helpful for us to keep in mind the whole psalm. So we're going to be looking at this whole psalm. But as I mentioned to you uh, last time that I was here, a part of what I like about this psalm is the way that David does two things. He reflects upon God. He reflects upon God's characteristics, his nature, who he is. But he does it in a way that shows that this isn't just bare knowledge. This isn't just data. These aren't just facts about God. But he writes with the heart of a poet who looks at his beloved and is moved to awe and wonder and says, glory at who you are. And this is such a good reminder for us of of how we're supposed to relate to God, not as just data, not as just philosophy, but as a person, that he's not so much an object as he is a subject. And so whenever we are thinking about God, we always should have this heart that comes to him as a person and says, because you are like this, I feel this. Because you are like this, I know this. God wants us to engage with him as a person. And David helps us to see how we can both understand the immensity of God, but through that in a way that hits at the intimacy that we can have with God. And so we're going to look at the second stanza where David dwells on the attribute of God, that he is omnipresent, that he is everywhere, but that he's also with us. And the outline for today is around that theme. Knowing God is with you. Knowing God is with you. But before we begin, let me read for us Psalm 139. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. 
Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God. Know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Amen. This is God's word. It's right for us to pause and ask his help in understanding it. Pray with me, if you will, in your hearts. God, we do ask that you would help write these truths into the depths of our heart in a way that brings into our heart the things that it needs, love and light. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. So last year, um, one of my favorite news stories happened in the city of Boone. I don't know if any of y'all went to App State, and I'm not trying to hate on the city of Boone or anything, but I think this captures in some sense that city well. And what happened is there was a police chase. And thankfully, no one was harmed, no one was hurt, but it was a police chase that lasted for an hour. And the police were chasing this person who was trying to get away from them as he rode on a tractor, a John Deere tractor. Big tires, the open cab, I mean, green, and he was just riding that sucker as though he thought that was his best path to freedom. And it lasted for an hour, though they didn't go very far, because you know they can only go like 15, 20 miles an hour. And they tried to stop him. They like would shoot out the tires, but he would just keep trucking. John Deere, I hope, has signed him to some sort of endorsement deal because no one believes as much in John Deere as this guy. He thought, I can get away on a tractor. And that, to me, struck me as so odd, so silly. I mean, who would think that my best getaway vehicle is a tractor? But in a sense, that's what David is saying sometimes we are like. You know, in this psalm, he's wanting us to get how, how at times we think we can escape a God who is everywhere. And so look at the first verse of the second stanza. He says, where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? David here is reflecting on the idea of God's omnipresence, that he is everywhere, that there's not a single space in existence where God is not present. As the shorter catechism says, when it begins to describe God, it says God is a spirit who is infinite. He's everywhere. And so he's not limited to one location. But but it's not like oxygen that seems to be just ubiquitous in this room. It's not just that Eastern religion idea that, that God is in everything and is everywhere. But the way that David speaks about God's omnipresence is with a sense of personalness. He says, where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? God's presence is personal, and the way that he describes it is with that word presence, which really is the word in Hebrew of face. You see what David's saying there? Where shall I flee from your face? It's not just that there's this ubiquitous nature of God that he just happens to be everywhere, but that he's fully present, that his face is right there with you wherever you go, watching you, looking over you, being with you. He's fully present in a personal way as we gather here for worship just as much as he is 
in the prison on Western Boulevard in Raleigh. He is fully present in Johnston County on a Friday night as he is in Jerusalem. He is equally and everywhere present in a personal way. But as David is reflecting on this, he says, well, where shall I flee from your presence? Where shall I go from your spirit? And he's asking this question, what do I do with the idea that you're everywhere? Because in a way, if you are everywhere, that, that can feel a little bit constraining. Those of you who are parents, have you ever had the experience of, of walking into like your, your four-year-old's room and they say, mommy, can you go? Pro tip, that means that something bad is happening. <laughs> they want you to go because they want to be able to do whatever they want to do without your presence impeding them. They want to take the fish out of the bowl and play with it in the car, right? And so they want you to go so that they can be free. This is, in a sense, what David is thinking. If God is this personal presence, if his face is everywhere, right there watching you, it can feel constraining. His presence can create this sense that I have to live with the acknowledgement that he is right there watching me. That's why we would want to hide from him. This is what we see at the very beginning of the Bible. When, when Adam and Eve sin, what is their first instinct? To hide. They didn't want God to see them in their guilt, their shame. They didn't want God to come in and, and make them be something that they didn't feel like they could be or want to be. Or we even see this in the prophet Jonah, who didn't want to follow God's command to go and to preach to Nineveh. And so Jonah 1.4 tells us that he fled the presence of God. He knew God was right there in Israel, so he thought, well, maybe I could just get away from that face so that I don't have to do what he wants me to do. Sometimes we think we can hide from God because we really want to avoid the fact that we have to deal with his presence and the way that that can constrain us. And like Jonah, we want to live however we want to live. And so we'll try to imagine or try to live as though his presence isn't right there with us. But this is kind of like playing peekaboo with a child. Perhaps you've played peekaboo, or perhaps you had peekaboo played with you. And I'm sure you know what peekaboo is, right? When, when the parent will cover over the eyes of the child and then pull them back. And the child smiles and laughs and delights. Because for a moment, when those hands go over the eye of that child, they really think that you are gone. Because as psychologists tell us, they haven't developed object permanence. But then when they see that you're there, they smile and say, oh yeah, she's still with me. Oh yeah, he's still right there. But in a sense, that's what we sometimes do towards God. We think that if I don't think about that he's right there, if I kind of put my hands over the fact that, that he is a face right with me, if I block my eyes or at least don't think about it in my heart, maybe he won't be there. Maybe he won't be seeing me, what I'm doing, how I'm thinking, how I'm feeling. We can think that God is with us at church on Sunday. We want him to see us there, but we don't think about him being with us on a Friday night. And so we act like he's not there. We can think that he's with us when we're looking at our Bible, but we don't want him to see us when we're looking online. We can think that he's listening to us when we pray, but we don't like the feeling of him listening to us when we're berating our spouse out of our own hurt or anger. 
That's like being the young child playing peekaboo. If I don't think about him being there, maybe he's not. And so we can hide away aspects of our heart, our doubts, our anger, our sins, our frustrations, and, and yet he sees it all equally, whether we're in the bar or in the pew. He sees our good and our bad. He sees it all, and not in a detached, far-off way, but in a personal way, where it impacts him in a way, where he would feel for us compassion in our hurt, but also feel for us a sense of longing for us not to turn to that sin that he knows will hurt us. And to have to deal with that reality, that God is always right there, not as just an empty presence, but as a person watching you. Doesn't that make you say, do I really want him to be around that much? Do I really want to have to deal with the reality that he sees everything? everything in a way that he feels too. And so David is asking that question, do I really want a God who is like this? But just as he did in the first stanza, what David does is he kind of draws out that truth of God and then he uses mirisms, which again is that idea of like two opposites that are used to communicate the extent of all in between. He uses mirisms to kind of like heighten the idea of what God is like before he then moves through that to a sense of, and because he's like that, I see that there's a gift there. There's something that is good there. And so that's what David does in this stanza. He asks that question, do I really want to think about the fact that God is everywhere? What does it mean that he's everywhere? And so he goes on to, to say in verse 8, If I send to the heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. And here again, that's, uh, those two opposite ends of, of Sheol, the, the place of death, and, and heaven, the place of life, the place of God. And he says, if I go to, to be up with you, of course you're there. But even if I go down into the bowels of death, it's not that you aren't there. You still are there. And so in the extremes, you are there. But David is using the extremes to say that he's also extremely present in every other aspect of our life. And so he goes on to say, if I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, and, and here what he's doing is he's kind of using east and west because the sun rises in the east, doesn't it? And so when he talks about taking the wings of the morning, he's kind of picturing the idea of kind of riding the, the feathers of, of the daylight as it shoots out across the world and saying, even if I was traveling at the speed of light on the crest of every single bit of sunlight that's touching the darkness of the globe, I wouldn't get there before you were already there. And then to talk about the west, he talks about the uttermost parts of the sea because in Hebrew thought, the sea was always to the west. And so even if I go as far down deep into the west to the uttermost parts of the sea, I will find that you were already there before me. And so David is talking about the extremities of where he could find God to be reminded that he's extremely present in every part of life. And to David, that's a comfort. To know that there's no aspect of this world, there's no aspect of life where God isn't fully present. Yes, there is a constraining aspect to think about that, but there's also something beautifully compelling to think about that. When you find yourself walking the halls of your school, just one in a faceless sea of people, 
God is right there watching you. When you feel unseen in your cubicle at work, writing a report that no one's going to read, he's right there watching you, valuing you, seeing you, loving you. And David wants to see that if he's at the extremities, he's extremely present in, in every part of the mundanity of our life. And so because of that, I can live in a different way before the face of God. This is what Christians for centuries have talked about with that Latin phrase, quorum Dio, living before the face of the God. And yes, there, there is a kind of hook to it that says, because of that, I have to acknowledge that he's watching me and that feels constraining. But because he's always watching me, that's also comforting. Because there's no aspect of my life that he doesn't see, no aspect of my life that he's not right there in a personal way, his face lovingly watching me. So that he even later in this psalm talks about when I awake, you are still there. Even though I'm not thinking of you throughout the whole night, you have been watching over me. All your life is lived before the, the face of God. And David wants to see that this is a gift. This is good. This is a comfort. And so he continues in verse 10 by saying, even there, in the extremities of life and death, even there, your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. That word lead is a word that's always used to the way God describes caring for his people, bringing them to safety through snares or dangers to triumph. It's what we see in Psalm 23 when it says that the Lord leads us in the path of righteousness for his name's sake. It's a good leading, bringing you to the place where you are going to be cared for and provided. And that word hold in the parallel line has the idea of a firm, strong grip, the way that, that God doesn't hold on to us in a, in a mean way, I will get you here, but in a kind way, I will not let you go. His presence is not just observational, like a camera kind of creating data of whether you're doing good or bad, but his presence is careful full of care, so that as he's with you in the extremities of life or in the mundanity of life, he's always there to lead you to a better place. He's always there to hold you in the midst of horrors and terrors that descend upon you. And you know that in the horrors or in the mundanity, his personal presence is there for your good. And that's what David wants us to understand, that his presence is there for our good. And yes, it can feel constraining, but it is ultimately our greatest comfort. If David slips into the grave or falls off the western edge of the earth into pitch blackness, God would be right there to seize him, to hold him, and to bring him where he needs to go. David wants us to see the gift of God's presence and, and the way that it helps us in, in the hardships of life. And that's why he goes on to speak about the darkness in the last two verses of this passage. He says, if I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even then the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as day for darkness is as a light with you. Darkness in the Old Testament is not just the absence of light but the presence of chaos. It is not a neutral thing, but it's a negative thing. And so it usually has a sense of threat about it. Think of how Paul describes salvation in Colossians 1, where he says, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness 
to bring us into the kingdom of the Son. And when he speaks of night here, he also isn't just talking about sleeping time. He's talking about the time when darkness in all its negativity seems to be reigning. And so what is David saying here as he's talking about darkness? When he says, if I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night. What is he saying there? He's saying, if in the midst of life, it feels like darkness is beginning to overwhelm me, whether it's because I've stepped into it, I've embraced it, or whether it's just coming into my life and it seems to be overwhelming me, uh, is it going to be stronger than God? Is it stronger than him? Will that night overwhelm me? Will it consume me? Will he not be able to see me? Will he not be able to hold me? Will he not be able to lead me? Is evil stronger than him? Is darkness stronger than him? He wants to know who is more powerful, darkness or God, night or him. And David wants us to think about this because it's at those times when we really have to draw most deeply to the fact that God is right there with us. Not in an empty way, but in a personal way. That in those times when we feel like we are being lost in the descent of night, the times when you feel overwhelmed by the darkness in your own soul, the darkness in this world, the chaos that's crushing or bruising your life, that it's in those times when his presence is so important and such a gift. But it's not just that his presence is with you in a comforting way, but that he, through that darkness, is holding you and leading you. And so David says that somehow that night which seems like chaos is overwhelming my life is not night, but to you, it's bright. That you're not threatened by it. You're not overwhelmed with it. You're not scared of it. It feels like night to me, but to you, it's bright as day. You haven't lost me. You aren't threatened by it. You are right there holding me and leading me through it. The darkness, he says, is as light to you, so powerful over it that, that it doesn't even get a blip on your radar. And so what God can do in the midst of darkness is what he's done since the very beginning of the Bible. Speak light. That's what we see in Genesis 1. In a, in a world of darkness, in a world of chaos, God speaks light into the world to overcome the darkness and then sends his presence, his spirit, to hover over the deep and begin to form good and beautiful things. And this is what we again see in John chapter 1 in the person of Jesus when he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the word was God. And he was in the beginning with God, a reflection back to Genesis 1. All things were made with him, and out with, without him nothing was made. And in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, John says. And the darkness did not overcome it. He's drawing on this psalm. He's saying, sometimes we feel like the darkness is going to overcome us, but Jesus, the light of the world, came into this world. And just as he did at creation, when he spoke light into the chaos and created beauty, that's what he's doing in our life and in this world at all times and every day and most of all in what we have seen in the gospel. To overcome the darkness, Jesus goes right into it. 
We even see this on the day that he was crucified. As he hung on the cross in the middle of the day from 12 to 3, when the daylight is supposed to be brightness, what happened? Darkness. Darkness descends because in that aspect, God is showing what we all deserve to descend into darkness and to be overwhelmed by the darkness and to be lost in the darkness. But it descended onto him. Why? So that we would not fear the dark. We would not fear the light. He entered into the darkness, light itself so that he could overcome it. And so Jesus, the light of the world, overcame darkness on that cross. And when he cried, it is finished, the darkness lifts. And he was placed in the grave. He went down to Sheol. But God did not leave him there, but brought him out of the grave on Easter morning as dawn rose, so did he. And through that, we know that the darkness was defeated. He died in the darkness. He came to life in the light of dawn. And so Paul tells us, if you are in Jesus, that's your story. He says this, for at one time you were darkness. You just not even are in darkness. You were darkness, but then what does he say? But now you are light in the Lord. Isn't that amazing? You are not darkness when you are with Jesus. You are not in darkness when you are with Jesus, but because he is with you, you are never in darkness. And when he is in you, you are never darkness. You are light. So powerful is Jesus that he can enter into the darkness of us and make us to be light. He brings his light into darkness and lets it shine. And he's doing that in you. He's doing that in me. He's doing that in this world. So that ultimately when we see in the book of Revelation, there is no night. There is no darkness because the lamb is the light of the world. But you see what that means for you, that, that you can know sure that there is no darkness in this world that you have to fear. There's no darkness in this world that can defeat you. The darkness that you see in you or the darkness you see out there, that cannot defeat you because Jesus has already defeated it. The darkness is his light to him. He's not threatened by it. He's not threatened by those patterns of behavior that you think I can never break. He can break them. He's not threatened by the the way that your marriage is crumbling. He's not threatened by it. He can feel it or he can carry you through it to whatever is on the other side. He is not threatened by anything because he is right there with you, his face watching you, his hand holding you and gently leading you from darkness into light. And so you don't have to fear the dark nights of soul when pain and sorrow and anguish feel so close because in the midst of feeling that he is caring for you and is leading you through that to himself. And he always stands between you and darkness so that it can never envelop you, but that you always walk in the light. He descended into this earth, descended into darkness 
so that he could bring light into us. And so every time you see darkness, you can know that with Jesus, it will become light because that's what he's always done. That's who he is. The light of the world entered into darkness to defeat it from the inside out, becoming night so that you could become day. And this is why Jesus came for you so that you would not fear the darkness, but you would give thanks for the one who overcomes it. You know, Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, when his newborn son was right there, he, he begins to speak a prophecy. He begins to talk about what it means that, that his son has come and the one who would come after him. And listen to what he says at the end of his prophecy as he speaks to his child. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Beloved, that's what God's tender presence means. That in his tender mercy, he brings the sunrise of the presence of his son into be the light of the world to lead all of us who feel like we are sitting in darkness and in the shadow of death into the way of peace. Amen. Let us pray. Jesus, we thank you for the gift of your presence. That because you are our good shepherd, we fear no evil, for you are with us. And we pray that we would live as children of the light, because you have made it to be. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.